Hello, and welcome to the Vaco County Pulse. This special legislative edition of The Pulse focuses on some of the most important issues before the General Assembly in the 2019 legislative session. The Pulse is developed by the Virginia Association of Counties and shares with our listeners the pulse of Virginia county governments. I'm Chris McDonald, VACO Director of Government Relations, and I'll be your host for this segment focusing on the 2019 Virginia General Assembly. Joining me today are VACO lobbyist Jeremy Bennett and VACO General Counsel Phyllis Arico. Jeremy covers education and commerce and labor issues in the General Assembly, while Phyllis handles general government and myriad legal issues. Phyllis and Jeremy, welcome, and thank you for being here. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Chris. This is my first podcast, so I'm really excited to be here. Well, welcome. Happy to have you. Today marks day 42 of this short 46-day legislative session. This session, we saw just under 3,000 bills introduced. Coming into this morning, 885 of these bills have passed both the House and Senate, while another 900 are pending final action. Committee work wrapped up late last night, February 18th, so we're drawing close to the end, leaving just these final bills, including the budget bills, to be worked out between the House and Senate before signy die, which is Saturday, February 23rd. Today's podcast is a veritable kitchen sink edition, as we'll cover a variety of topics, including school modernization, school safety, the Freedom of Information Act, Conflicts of Interest Act, as well as a number of other topics pertaining to -to day-to-day administration of local governments, including grievance procedures, workers' compensation, procurement, and more. Jeremy, I'd like to start with you. Schools has been a big issue throughout this General Assembly session. I was wondering if you could kind of give us an update on where we're at for some of the hot topics there. I'd be happy to, Chris. There's been a lot of uh, a lot of movement on school issues this session, and it's been uh, really interesting to see where the General Assembly has advanced bills and where they've shot them down. Um, no, no better place to start than school modernization. As we've written at length in our County Connect and Capital Contact, many localities across the Commonwealth face significant challenges in raising enough funds to undertake capital school construction and renovation projects. Uh, the average cost for school, school construction can range anywhere from 20 to $80 million, a you know, significant amount of change. And according to um, a recent, well, a 2013 report, more than 40% of Virginia's public school buildings and facilities were built at least 50 years ago, and another 20% were constructed at least 40 years ago. And uh, a lot of these buildings are ending, you know, are coming up on the end of their usable service life, so there's a need to uh, repair them or construct new facilities. And certainly some locales with growing populations, now Northern Virginia, the Urban Crescent, they just have a, a real need to build more facilities to meet the demand of uh, having those students. So the uh, Senate Subcommittee on School Facility Modernization looked at this issue over the summer. They did several regional tours across the Commonwealth to uh, see, get a better idea of the scope of the issue. And uh, there were several pieces of legislation introduced uh, stemming from that review. The first, uh, the flagship recommendation actually was to um, provide for a statewide referendum on the question of whether the General Assembly should issue uh, state general obligation bonds in the amount of $3 billion for the purpose of uh, K-12 school building construction repair and other capital projects related to school facilities. And the results would have been advisory only and intended to demonstrate the will of the uh, the citizens of the Commonwealth on uh, whether 
whether the General Assembly should move forward with what is a very significant amount of money. But, you know, looking at the report in terms of modernization, what's needed, we are looking at uh, capital needs in the range of 3 to $4 billion. Um, now, unfortunately, the Senate Finance, uh, they decided to pass that bill by indefinitely. So uh, we won't be seeing that uh, issue on the ballot this November. Uh, another another recommendation of the uh, subcommittee was to create a uh, public school assistance fund and program for the purpose of providing grants to uh, localities used solely for the purpose of um, taking on the roofing issue. And one of the recommendations that the subcommittee had was that, um, you know, looking at the schools across the Commonwealth, a lot of problems stem from school roofs. If the roof goes, it leads to water damage leaking into the school, issues of mold, electric, etc. And the subcommittee thought that if we provide a fund that addresses roofing issues, then it would help. It's not necessarily a $3 billion issue, but it still addresses a lot of the, the uh, other concerns. And uh, unfortunately, that did also um, that was also left in committee. So there, those are the two that didn't make it. Now, focusing on two uh, two bills that are of interest um, that are still alive as we speak. Uh, one, there's a uh, there's a House and a Senate version, but they established permissive standards for the design, construction, maintenance, and operation of public school buildings and facilities um, to enter into public-private partnerships, whether that's construction or lease uh, agreements, um, but also allow for net energy metering um, standards for uh, energy produced by on-site solar panels. And uh, we had worked with other education stakeholders on that to make sure that language is permissive, um, but basically it's providing a template for another way of looking at the school modernization, school construction issue. And those bills are still alive and and making their way through the General Assembly. Um, The other bill I just want to touch briefly on is a taxing authority bill. And that uh, basically would have given uh, localities additional tax authority to raise sales tax dedicated to school construction and modernization uh, with the approval of the local governing body, of course, and contingent upon passing a local voter referendum. And the thought being that this would be an additional tool in the local toolbox to help address a major problem faced by these localities. And the bill was originally broad enough to include all localities, and there was no limit on the amount of additional sales tax that could be raised. However, it's since been amended to be limited to only uh, one county where this is an issue, and the amount of additional sales tax has been limited to 1%. So um, it's actually on the floor today in the Senate, so we'll see how that fares. Um, but it would be interesting if it does pass, is maybe to see how that works in that locality is maybe a template for future sure. future issues. And I would also just note that in the proposed uh, governor's and uh, Senate budgets, there's about 80 to and $70 million, respectively, for the literary fund. Uh, which provides low-interest loans for school construction and modernization, and, but due to lack of funding, has a backlog of about 18 approved, project, 18 approved projects. And this additional funding would free up those, those projects, and uh, hopefully we could see more funding in further general assemblies to uh, make that available to localities. Sure. So kind of staying in the same realm for a bit, another hot topic has been school safety. What kind of updates do you have there? Sure. So... There, as we may have discussed in, in our publications, uh, the House Select Committee on School Safety and the Governor's Work Group on School Safety worked this past year and summer on recommendations to improve school safety across Virginia. And uh, the Governor and the House budgets have proposed approximately $3.3 million in additional funding to uh, Department of Criminal Justice Services, DCJS, for the Virginia Center for School and Campus Safety, uh, which kind of oversees uh, trainings and resources for school resource officers, school security officers in Virginia. 
And uh, the House version of the, the proposed budget has specific language stemming from the recommendations from the House Select Committee on how the money to be, is to be used. Specifically, it mandates that uh, VCSCS devote time and staff to provide annual active shooter trainings to schools and communities, provide additional training to school resource officers and school security officers, and expand training provided to local threat assessment team members. And uh, the House version of the budget also provides an additional $3 million for the school resource officer grant program, uh, which currently funds a number of school resource officer placements in schools across Virginia that currently don't have school resource officers providing security at their facilities. And this additional funding would cover approximately 44 new placements. So uh, there's a, a real responsiveness, and I think, into the rec- recommendations made by the House Select Committee and the Governor's uh, Committee to uh, provide more uh, funding to make sure that schools are, are better equipped and uh, that their officers who are in schools are better trained. So with all this talk of school modernization and school safety, none of this really matters so much if students aren't actually present at the schools. So I want to ask, you know, what is happening with school calendars and start times this year? It's been a hot issue for the last several years, but it seems like there's been some real changes this year. Yeah, so this this is definitely an issue that predates my time, uh, certainly with VACO and certainly lobbying. <laughs> it goes uh, back to a law that was passed, I believe, in uh, 34 years ago uh, that's uh, commonly referred to as the King's Dominion Law, which, uh, which limits the ability of schools to open uh, before Labor Day. And the reason the impetus, as I understand it from that law, was it's a uh, way of helping the tourism industry make sure that uh, students and families are available, their summers extend through the Labor Day so that they can enjoy all the wonderful attractions that our uh, localities in Virginia um, have to offer. And uh, there have been changes to the bill over, or to the law over time that have allowed communities to uh, apply for waivers for the Department of Education to uh, open earlier than Labor Day if they have adverse weather condi- conditions. And uh, certainly the General Assemblies have done other carve outs for localities. Yeah. And um, what you see basically in the current form is most localities, with some exceptions, west of I 95 had the option of starting before Labor Day, and those east of 95, for the most part, uh, start um, start afterwards. So there's been there's a bill that's making its way to the governor's desk at this point that would allow local school boards to set the opening day of the school year uh, no earlier than 14 days before Labor Day, and it grandfathers existing. Uh, good cause scenarios, the, the waivers that we talked about uh, that the Board of Education has granted, um, it allows them to continue. Uh, and with some exception, those schools, um, they do have to now close before the Friday before Labor Day, um, except, you know, the exception being schools that were granted a waiver via the 2012 Acts of Assembly. So tourism industry maybe not be the happiest about it, but it does provide more local flexibility uh, for school divisions. Um, certainly, there's a cited need to start uh, schools earlier to help them prepare for assessments later in the year. But um, not having a position on this bill, it just gives more flexibility to localities to determine what is best for their communities. Well, thanks, Jeremy. Shifting gears a little bit, Phyllis, FOIA and COIA issues. Every year we see just countless bills introduced, uh, just year after year after year, and this year was no exception despite the short session. Uh, I was wondering if you could give us a nice update on kind of what's happened in that FOIA and COIA realm. Sure, Chris. Well, transparency is important. It's important for citizens. It's important for public officials. And so we constantly strive under the Freedom of Information Act to develop that balance of transparency and make sure that um, government is happening uh, in, in an open fashion 
but also that uh, a governing body can also do the business of government. So this year, as every year, we've had several freedom of information bills introduced, and I'm just going to talk about a couple that really um, affect local government. Uh, the first is a uh, what I call a penalties bill. Um, y- you know, there's a perception often that uh, public officials are not following the act, um, even in even though I think that they are most of the time. But um, in that vein, there was a bill this year. It's actually been introduced in the last few years, but did not pass. That adds additional penalties uh, to the Freedom of Information Act, and it's interesting. In in a way, it's a response to the different technologies and the different ways that public records um, can can be created and kept. Whether it's an email, a text, a social media site, that sort of thing. Uh, well, one bill that's on its way to passage. Uh, has two parts, and the first part um, basically addresses when a person has a public record that is subject to a Freedom of Information Act request. And this bill states that if someone destroys a public record in whatever form um, that is the subject of a FOIA request, then they that the, and the case goes to court, then a civil penalty can be imposed of up to $100 per record. If we're talking text, that could be really a hefty penalty. So this is something to really watch out for. It's very narrowly drawn, and it's something that our folks need to be aware of. There was a second part of this bill that was very troublesome for local government, and this second part of the bill basically said that if a public body votes to go into closed meeting and then comes out and certifies the closed meeting and something was discussed that wasn't mentioned when they went in, that each member of that public body could be penalized a a civil penalty of up to $500. That really puts people who volunteer their time, who, who do public service at risk, Our issue with this was that there are inadvertent um, violations, if you will, where when people get into closed session, they discuss the public business that they've mentioned, but sometimes they ask about the health of one of the employees or another public official that, of course, was not listed in the certification. Um, So we, we really objected to this provision, and it was removed by the House Committee, so the bill is moving along nicely with just the first provision in it about the documents. Another really important bill that's on its way to passage is a new mandatory training bill for local public officials. So what this bill does is it mandates training uh, every two years for local elected officials. Um, Now, currently, the law only requires that these officials read the Freedom of Information Act within two weeks of being elected or appointed and understand it. But there was no formal training component. So this bill, which will become effective in 2020, requires 
training by either the Freedom of Information Act council staff or your local government attorney, and the the record of the training has to be kept by your clerk of your board or your school board for five years. Um, now, we asked for an amendment to be added. We think that getting the whole training in place is, is going to take some time. And uh, the patron added an amendment at our request that there will not be a penalty if a training session is missed. Clearly, we want the training for all of our folks. We want it in a timely fashion, but we, we don't want to ping people sure. who are trying to get the appropriate training. Related to that, there's a conflict of interest mandated training bill that is also going through and, and should pass. Very similar, except for the training has to be done by the conflict of interest advisory council, and it can be done online, as, as the FOIA training can be done online as well. And this uh, takes effect... December 2019. So those who are in office on July 1st when this law becomes effective are going to have to get their training pretty quickly to be in compliance. Um, but, but you know, appropriate to have the right kind of training for our folks. Well, this is kind of provides a nice segue. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, you know, so many bills were introduced this session, like years before, that really have to do with kind of the day-to-day administration of local government duties. Uh, FOIA and COIA are absolutely one of the hot issues there, um, but a few others have really popped up that I know that we've been tracking that VACO and our members are greatly interested in. So, Jeremy, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what's happened in the wor- realm of workers' comp. Sure, I'd be happy to, Chris. Uh, workers' comp, is, as you may know, is the form of insurance providing wage replacement and medical benefits benefits to employees injured in the course of employment in exchange for mandatory relinquishment of the employee's right to sue their employer for negligence. Uh, where that, the intersection between workers' comp and counties, we're talking about county employees, and there were several bills this session that sought to expand the list of presumptive illnesses um, under workers' comp, uh, particularly for firefighters and other first responders. Uh, there were several bills that uh, would add the cancers of uh, the colon, brain, and testes to the existing list of Conditions currently presumed to be an occupational disease uh, develop, when developed by firefighters and certain public employees. Uh, and basically, that's our concern with that. And the other bill, I should say, um, for, was for other first responders, adding PTSD, making that a occupational disease. And certainly, we, you know, our position is that we want to take care of our employees and take care of first responders. But we had real concerns, not with the intent of the bill, but the potential fiscal impact to localities. And uh, we basically were advocating that any major legislative action on workers' presumption issues, they should wait until the Joint Legislative Audit and Review Commission, as we call it, JLARC, uh, completes its study this coming year of this issue um, as adding these diseases and uh, illnesses um, to the list of presumptive illnesses could lead to higher employer premiums paid by localities to cover expanded liabilities with an indeterminate fiscal cost. So... We really, um, we really worked to make sure that the uh, the House and Senate money committees were aware of that, and uh, there was great leadership shown by um, some of the members of those committees to make sure that um, this legislation was referred to the JLARC study. Um, the particularly the firefighters' uh, presumptive illness bills, uh, they were uh, were passed by 
both bodies, uh, but with an enactment and a reenactment clause. So um, the enactment clause being that the, any findings from JLARC uh, need to be taken into account, and the reenactment meeting that when the General Assembly meets next year, they'll need to pass this legislation again uh, in light of that information to take effect. Um, and the PTSD bill, uh, there weren't, it wasn't passed, there wasn't an enactment or reenactment clause, but it was referred to the JLARC study. So this is an issue that we'll see again next year, uh, but, and we'll certainly be happy to work with JLARC to make sure that they have information so that they can make informed recommendations and informed policy. And that's really all that we want to do is not jump, get ahead of ourselves here and really just make sure that we're, um, we're doing, doing right by people and doing right the right way. So speaking of, you know, not getting ahead of ourselves here, Phyllis, the grievance procedure bills, what, what happened there? Um, so grievance procedures, something I get excited about because I spent a lot of years um, handling these kinds of matters, but um, very much in the weeds. But, you know, in order to serve our citizens in the community with the best uh, public service we can, we have to have the best employees and we have to have fair employment processes in our local governments. So um, we have seen a bill uh, for at least the last eight years be introduced that would um, really make some changes to the local grievance procedure um, that I think would harm what is a good and impartial and fair process. And we saw this bill again this year, um, and I'm happy to say that uh, the bill did not make it out of subcommittee, so we will not be seeing these changes. But um, what it really did are a couple of important things. If, if this bill had passed, it would change, it would basically eliminate impartial panels uh, that exist throughout the Commonwealth in various localities um, to hear these cases and would mandate that basically these cases are heard by a three-member panel of employees. And um, I've handled many of those kinds of cases, and it's really not um, the smoothest, and really it's not the most impartial way to handle a grievance. Another important um, aspect that, that would have been changed had this bill passed was at the end of a grievance, a decision is made um, for an outcome. And there are times when the outcome may not be within the parameters of local policy. And the provision, the provision that allowed, um, in most cases, it's your chief executive officer to determine whether the final outcome was um, in compliance with policy was stripped out. And what you could have in that case is um, if the final panel decided, oh, we want to make this person a department head, and they don't have the appropriate qualifications to be that department head, then a determination could be made, nope, you need to go back to the drawing board. This isn't consistent with local policy. So we're very pleased that this bill did not go forward. So as long as we're kind of in the weeds, I'd be remiss not to mention procurement. Um, just as a quick update to our listeners, um, there was some troubling procurement-related legislation, HB 1667 on the House side and SB 1369 on the Senate side, that attempted to amend the Virginia Public Procurement Act to significantly limit the time frame during which a public body, such as a local government, could bring an action on a construction contract or against a surety on a performance bond. Um, more specifically, these bills attempted to prohibit legal action on any construction contract unless that action was brought within five years of the complete 
completion of the work, or in the case of latent defects, was brought within five years of the discovery of a latent defect, um, or in the case of a warranty in such a construction contract is brought no more than one year after the expiration of such a warranty. Um, Watching these bills go through and really digging into them, we realized that this would really represent a sweeping change to the status quo, um, affecting everyone from the Commonwealth through their agency of the Department of General Services to institutions of higher education, from county governments to local school boards. Uh, ultimately, both of these bills did fail to advance uh, from the House Appropriations Committee um, because House Appropriations wanted to include some language in their proposed budget that would require DGS, with oversight from JLARC, to actually review these statute limitations policies on state contracts for construction services. Um, so the language would require DGS to consult with governmental bodies and representatives from private sector construction community um, to really analyze this issue and try to come back to the table next year with some recommendations about where to go forward. Um, so, you know, the, the threat is still out there, but it has been neutralized in an effective fashion this, this year where we're able to actually take a breath, take some time, and analyze this issue a little bit more deeply in a more nuanced way. And I think that's important, Chris, because <clears throat> this bill was the first time as, as local government representatives that um, we were aware that this was an issue for contractors, and we never had the opportunity to sit down and discuss um, how various language would affect local government. So we look forward to this study and participating with the Department of General Services and the contractor community to really try to come to a solution that works for everybody. Another interesting bill I want to touch on before we get out of here um, was another was SB 1336, which presented a bit of a quandary related to mechanics liens, which you wouldn't ordinarily assume as a local government issue. But Phyllis, what, what happened there? Um, really interesting bill, Chris. And, and um, when we as a staff read all these bills, um, you know, the 3,000 of them, we're, we're looking for buzzwords and things that um, alert us that it's going to have an effect on, on local government. This one, uh, talking about mechanics liens, which is, is essentially um, sort of a private uh, business uh, uh, method to collect money on a debt. So let's say you bring your car into a garage, you get it fixed, and you never pick it up because you don't want to pay the fee for getting it fixed. Well, essentially, that garage can, um, after a certain notice and a certain amount of time, can sell your vehicle so that they can get their debt. Well, one would think this would not have anything to do with local government, but when you read into the actual text of the bill, you find out that it provides a method of posting on a local government website. Well, this was kind of a shock to us since um, up heretofore we aren't even um, allowed to really post our own notices of ordinances and such on our website. We are required under the law in most cases to publish in a newspaper. So it seemed a little bit ironic that um, this bill allowed private entities to come and advertise on a local government website as one means of posting notice. Um, the problem with this bill is that local government websites are not open to the public. They're not open public forums. They exist for the purpose of basically um, letting people know what is going on in the local government, 
um, different what meetings are going on, what issues are dealing with, and they're not open for private citizens or businesses to post. So we attempted to have this bill amended to take out um, the allowing of posting on local government websites. Um, we were not able to do that, and the patron and the proponents have all said to us, well, tell the local government just to say no if somebody wants to post that it's not available um, for that purpose. So kind of an odd bill for us to be involved with. And you've heard it. Just say no. So we're almost out of time, but I want to touch on one other bill that I know that we were really involved with tracking um, and uh, opposing as it made its way through the General Assembly, uh, which was related to agritourism and in particular kind of opening the door to uh, wedding events. Phyllis, what can you tell us about that? So this was an interesting bill. Um, Let me go back first to give a little context. In, um, In the Commonwealth of Virginia, Agriculture is really important. It's important to the history. It's important to the health of um, the Commonwealth. And it's important from an economic development perspective to a lot of our rural communities. So it's something we very much support. And and people that are involved in agriculture um, uh, often are a little bit frustrated about different means of um, uh, producing revenues from their farming, ranching, other agricultural activities, and started to get into the realm of what we'll call agritourism, ways to bring people onto the farm, onto the ranch, learn about what they're doing, get interested in, in agriculture. And in 2016, a bill was passed Um, which allowed certain agritourism activities to take place on agricultural land without a lot of local regulation and foresight. So the kinds of things that we were seeing were um, things related to the the farming, whether it's pick your own fruit, your pumpkins, um, you know, come visit the animals that we're raising, that kind of thing. So an inherent nexus to agricultural Absolutely. activities. Absolutely. Um, and and those kinds of things have been taking place throughout the Commonwealth uh, since this new law, and I think very, very um, successfully in, in a good partnership between the locality, the citizens, and, and, and of course the agritourism operators. What the bill that was introduced this session sought to do was to define weddings as an agricultural activity. Um, And so we were really alarmed about that because what that does when it's defined as an agritourism or agricultural activity, it does two things. One, it uh, limits the liability of that operator. So under the agritourism uh, liability sections of the code, if somebody is engaged in agricultural activity or agritourism and they post a sign saying that there are inherent risks of agricultural activities, then basically they're not held liable if if an incident or or even, God forbid, a a death occurs um, on the property when the public is coming on. When you add weddings into that section, um, it's a whole new arena of liability. Also, when you add weddings, 
what that would do is it would basically prevent the local government from addressing um, all the things, all the, the concerns that come with gathering a big group of people together, using roads that may be uh, gravel or dirt. Where will they park? Um, a really big issue also is many of the buildings on these properties are, do not meet the building code. Under a 1999 exemption from the um, by the legislature, um, farm buildings are not subject to the building code um, because basically they're used for farm, farming activities. Makes sense. When you take a building like that and you, the original bill allowed up to 250 people 12 times a year, and you put 250 people in it and there's no um, provisions about ingress and egress, load bearing, um, you know, you bring a bunch, bunch of furniture in there, you may block an exit, you're bringing food preparation, you're bringing other um, electrical um, concerns in there with, with lights and food preparation and bands. Uh, you're creating a whole set of concerns that, that can't be addressed if a local government cannot regulate. So we were really concerned about adding this kind of activity in with those activities that have been working well um, with the provision in the 2016 Act. And so um, we really worked hard on this because we, we um, support these activities, we support these agritourism operators, but we want to do it in a fashion that um, protects, the, protects the public, protects the um, surrounding landowners, and just takes care of all the issues that um, we can take care of through local regulation. And in fact, weddings are taking place on these properties, but they're um, in most cases being addressed by conditional use permits or special exceptions, whereby the locality can put the appropriate measures um, on the, these types of activities to do the best they can about balancing the activity with the safety. Well, Jeremy and Phyllis, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your insights and your information. Wish you the best of luck with the final four days of session. Um, we look forward to catching back up with you soon. And to all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'll catch you next time here on the Vaco County Pulse. Thank you. Thank you, Chris.